Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gave light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Emily. All right, guys, welcome to Covenant City Church. A lot of new faces. Uh, I said in, in the beginning earlier that if this is your first time worshiping with us, then I would love to get to know you. I'd love to meet you. And my wife would also love to meet you um, for, for uh, us to get to know you better and maybe answer any questions you have about Christianity or the Bible or, or the church, uh, or this church specifically too. So if this is your first time worshiping with us, I want you to know that we are entering into a new series, into the book of John. We just got done with studying the whole book of Galatians. It's, it's one of the books in the New Testament. And today we're going to start a new series through the book of John. Now the book of Galatians took us six months to finish. And the book of Galatians had six chapters. The book of John has 21 chapters. And each chapter is longer than the chapters in the book of Galatians. So I don't know how long it will take us. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to take breaks from it. We're not just going to go through it uh, without any breaks and um, uh, maybe do other passages some Sundays or maybe even do some mini-series mini, mini um, to kind of break it up. But um, uh, So hopefully we don't get too tired of it. But we are starting it. And uh, today's sermon, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, is going to be a little bit different than the other sermons I've done. Usually when I, when I expose a passage, I do three points or I want to point out three things about this particular passage, um, but this passage is probably one of the more complicated ones that I've ever come across, because it is. has a lot of theology, has a lot of depth to it, so I'm going to break it not in three sections, but I'm going to talk about it in two halves, okay? There, there's two halves I'm going to uh, break this passage down to. The, the first half, we're going to talk about the main point of the passage, which is the reality about God and creation. That's going to take about 50% of our sermon time, so out of the 40 minutes or whatever, that's going to be 50%. It's going to be a little bit technical, okay? So stick with me. It's going to take some brain work. But any venture that talks about God will take brain work. If it doesn't, then God's not God. Um, he is an infinite being nonetheless. So let's uh, join in with me as we, as we dig deeper into uh, our main point, the reality about God and creation. And then this, the other half, the other 50%, we're going to get practical, we're going to ask the question, if these things are true about God and about creation, if, this is, if we say this is true, what implications does that have in our lives? How does it affect our lives? How does it shape how we live? So we're going to talk about four implications. First, if what the Bible says about God and creation is true, how does it define what true life is? How does it shape the way of true love? How does it give the church her true purpose? And how does it reveal God's passion for us? How does it define what true life is? How does it shape the way of true love? How, how does it give the church her true purpose? And how does it reveal God's passion for us? All right? So before we jump into our first point, let me just give you a 30-second brief context of, of the book of John. The book of John is what's called a gospel. Now, this is different than the gospel. When you hear Christians say the gospel, they mean the good news, the ultimate good news that we and the Bible would say Jesus Christ, God, came and died on a cross to pay for our sins. We are sinful, we cannot save ourselves, and God came and died for our sins. That's the gospel. A gospel is just referring to the four, first four books of the New Testament, which means this is the story and the life of Jesus Christ recorded. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels. Okay, so John is a gospel as it records the life and the ministry of Jesus on earth. Now we must read this book not like a poetry like the Psalms in the Old Testament, not like a fiction like when Jesus says like a parable 
He, he tells us a story that's not really true, but he's kind of saying it to make a, make a point. That's a parable. We're not reading this like a parable. We're not reading this like a letter, like Galatians. We just went through Galatians, right? Paul wrote a letter to churches, and this isn't a letter. It's not poetry. It's not fiction. It's a historical narrative. It's a record of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus, the historic person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have questions about the validity of the Gospels, I don't have time to expose that right now, but come up to me later, and I'd love to talk to you more about that, um, how, how valid are these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right? So let's, let's get into it, but let me start us with prayer. Father, out of the six or seven months that this church has been running, this is the one passage I've been most nervous to handle because it says a lot of deep truths and claims about who you are, and it must be done carefully. Lord, I pray that you be gracious to us. I pray that you would speak um, through your word into our minds and into our hearts that will affect our actions. And Lord, have mercy and grace uh, on us, and let not the effect in which we receive from your word be dependent upon the imperfect sermon that's been prepared by me. Let it be affected by what you have said in your word, and let it, let it influence the people here, me and everyone here, that need it. We need revelation of who you are and a reminder of what life is about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 50% of the sermon, we're just going to talk about this one point, the main reality about God and creation. Everyone, whether they realize it or not, has a reality. Let's define reality as this. Everyone has a theological statement that shapes their view of the world. I'll explain that. Everyone has a theological statement that shapes their view of the world. In other words, every single person has ideas about God. Who God is, does he exist, who he's not. And our ideas about God shapes our worldview. It shapes our view of the world. We all have a theology that shapes a worldview. Now, you might say, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists. How can I be a theologian? Well, you just made a theological claim that God doesn't exist. That's a, that's a theological claim, right? You're, you're a theologian. So everyone is a theologian. The question is, who is influencing our theology? Is it our own thoughts? Is it our own ideas? Is it our, is it our own experiences? And it's important to figure this out because our theological claim, whatever it may be, that all of us have, is highly, highly influences our worldview. It defines the purpose of life, the purpose of creation, defines what love is, or what our duties are and responsibilities are as human beings. There's a quote from Forbes magazine, a young CEO that lives in New York, and this CEO said, there is no greater honor than supporting someone's growth and evolu evolution as a human being. By evolution, she means actual macroevolution, like, you know, we evolved, there's no God, but we are all by chance. There's no greater honor than supporting someone's growth and evolution as a human being. That statement is filled with a lot of theology, right? And it's filled with a theology that feeds into her worldview and her way of life. This person's theology is saying that there's no God, we're not created by God, we're products of evolution. And therefore, her view of growth is progressing further down this evolutionary process. Her theology dictates her view of what growth is, you see. Her theology also shapes her definition of love. To love others the best, the best way to love others is to help them progress down this evolutionary process. That would make sense if that's her theology, which also defines her definition of greatest honor and purpose of life, which is to evolve and to move forward. Your theology always affects your worldview and always dictates how you live. We all have it. It's really important then, again, to ask ourselves, where do we have the basis? What is our basis for our theological claims? Now, I'm starting off with the assumption that the Bible is the Word of God. And as Christians, we believe the Scripture is the inspired Word of God, and it is what we base our theology on. Now, again, because of time, I can't go into the details and argue against the validity or for the validity of the scripture and the inspired word of God. If you're interested about that, again, we can talk afterwards. And when we have a, a church office, hopefully we can hold monthly seminars that talk about these kinds of things. But to, to talk about the passage we have in front of us, I can't get too much into it right now. But let, right now, let's move with the assumption that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is what dictates and is the basis of our theology. All right, so let's begin. How do these 13 verses shape our theology 
and therefore influence our worldview and tell us how we're supposed to live our lives based on that, based on that theology. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. In the beginning was the Word. This Word was in the beginning before anything else created. By the way, does this sound familiar to you? In the beginning, the Word. Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God. John here is making a theological statement just from this first verse. That God created the whole world, it's not an accident, it's not by chance, it's a personal, eternal being that purposed creation into being. But then John changed one word from Genesis, didn't he? In Genesis it says, in the beginning, God created. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. He changed the word God with the word word, which in Greek is logos. In the beginning, logos. Who is this logos? Now, this is where we're going to get into some details, but it's important to know these details because this logos, this whole thing, shapes our theology and influences how we live our lives. So it's important to make sure we're getting what the Bible is saying correctly. Who or what is this logos? Well, if we're connecting John chapter 1, verse 1 to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which is the first book in the Bible, we're saying that this logos is the Old Testament God, that the Old Testament God in Genesis that created all of creation is who this Logos that John is referring to. Well, that's a big claim, right? That's a big claim. How, how can we be sure that John did, didn't just accidentally say the same words that Genesis 1-1 wrote? Like, how do we know that his connections are intentional? Well, if you look at the passage again, the Genesis 1 theme, that, the themes that you see in Genesis 1 when the world was created in the beginning God, is not only in the first verse, but it's in the whole passage. Look at verse 3 with me. There's this theme of creation. All things were made through him, through the Logos. And without him was not anything made that was made. So there's a theme of creation, right? The Logos created, like the Old Testament God in Genesis, created the cosmos, the world. On top of that, verses 4 and 5, you see more themes that repeat what you hear in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 4 says, in him was life. You see the theme of life. Verse 5 says, He is the light that shines in the darkness. So you see themes of creation, of life, of light, and of darkness. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and you tell me if you see any connections of the themes of creation and life and light and darkness that we see in John chapter 1. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, what? Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. There's too many themes we see that is the same in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, and Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 or chapter 1, really, of, of, of creation and life and light and darkness, it's highly unlikely that John just accidentally wrote the same words in the first verse. He intentionally meant to say, in the beginning, Logos. This Logos was God, the God of the Old Testament. Okay, I, I'll get into it because I think we have time. If, if John meant a lesser God, if John meant that the Logos was some kind of lesser divine being, there was a perfect Greek word he could have used. He could have used the word theos. T-H-E-I-O-S, the English, theos, right? But no, he decided to use the word that they used to describe God, theos, without the I in the middle. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, was with theos, and the word was theos. The logos is very God of very God. It's not a lesser God, it's not some kind of angel. So this is a huge piece that shapes the Christian theology or understanding of God. The God that created the whole cosmos is the same God described in John chapter 1 as the Word, as the Logos. But here's a confusion. Verse 1 not only says the Word was God, also says that the Word was with God. Okay, this is where it gets complicated. How can the Word be God, but be with God at the same time? Right? If, if we think about it as human beings, if I'm with the person, that means I'm in close proximity to that person. 
But if I say I am that person, that means I'm in unity with that person, right? I can't, as human beings, I can't be with someone and be someone at the same time. It doesn't make sense. But yet, that's what it says here. It's a different person, but the same God. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that more. Here's what the Bible is claiming to be true about God. He is one God, but this one God have different persons. I just put myself into a hole that I don't know if I can dig myself out of. But that's what the Bible says. He's one God, and this God is different persons. Here we see two, this Logos and this God. With, he was with God, but he was God. But if you read the whole New Testament, it's clear that there's three. There's three persons, three, not three gods, see? We have to be careful and not say that. But in the New Testament, it's clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God is therefore addressed, as you probably have heard, as a triune God. You've heard this word before, I'm sure, the Trinity, right? The Christian God. Let's get into that a little bit, but before we get into the complications of the Trinity, and I dig myself deeper into this, into this thinking hole, um, it's important to identify who this Logos is. Okay, who, who is this Logos that was with God and was God? Okay, who was this being? Well, verse 9 to 12, let's read verses 9 to 12. will tell us, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He's coming, he, he was coming into the world, and he was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He, he came to the world, he was rejected by the world. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who else is this speaking of? Who came into the world? Jesus Christ. Who was rejected by his own people, even unto a cross? Jesus Christ. Whose death forgave us from our sins and made us children of God? Jesus Christ. This logos, this light that came into the world, rejected by his people, and gave us the right to become a child of God, is referring to Jesus Christ. So here's another big theological piece that comes into our theological minds. And again, it's important. It's going to shape how you live your lives. That Jesus Christ is God. Very God of very God. But if you read the New Testament again, there's not just two persons in the Godhead, there's three. If you look at the rest of the New Testament, there's a Father, there's a Son, there's a Holy Spirit. All three have divine authority and have, all have divine rights. Okay, we can't look at all the passages, but let me just briefly uh, say a few. You, you see the, Jesus praying to the Father, giving glory and authority to the Father. You see the Father giving glory to the Son. It, it's power and glory to the Son. You see the Holy Spirit revealing the gospel to our dead hearts, that we can receive the gospel. And, and the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, those are the three names we're called to be baptized into in the Great Commission. You guys, I'm sure, have heard the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it. Okay, we're still, we're still in the Trinity here. Question five. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. There is only one God. How many persons, question six, are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, I feel bad for all of us right now. Because we're about to study the most probably the most complicated Christian theology there is in about two minutes. And the person I feel most sorry for right now is myself. Uh, but let's, let's, see, let's see if we can tackle this. Okay, I can't, again, I can't really get into too much of the details because we won't end up talk, talking about the rest of the passage. But let me just say a few things. It, it's dangerous to, to try and simplify the Trinity to some kind of analogy, right? I've heard people say, oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's one God, but this one God wears three different hats. Well, then you're underplaying the threeness of God. It's not one God that's just wearing three different masks or three different hats. You can't also say that it's, like a pie chart, and then like there's a third of God, the, son, the Father's a third, the Son's a third, and the Holy Spirit's a third, because then that underplays the oneness. Then you have three thirds of uh, gods. You can't, you can't use that either. And you can't, I've heard people say it's like a room, there's a wall, there's a ceiling, there's a floor, there's three parts to one room. It, you, just can't, you just can't do that. It just doesn't really fulfill the mystery of, of God. And I know it's messy, and I know it's mysterious, and I don't know if finite minds like us can fully grasp 
the infinite realities of an infinite being? I don't think we should, because then we would be God. So it makes sense that there's mystery, right? And probably won't be satisfied until we see him face to face. But let me just briefly say that if we don't believe in a Trinitarian God, we actually run into a whole lot more problems. If God isn't Trinitarian, we can't really say that God is love. We can't. Because to love, to be loving, implies an object to love. Well, some will say that's why God created human beings. God created human beings so that God can be loving to the human beings. God can then be love. Well, then if you say that, then you're saying at some point God wasn't love. And then when God created human beings, then he became loving. Does that make sense? He, there was, he, was, he was imperfect before. He wasn't perfectly loving before. And then when he created human beings, he became love. Love became love is something outside of him that is given to him after he's created an object to love. You can't say that God is intrinsically loving unless he's Trinitarian, unless he has an object of eternal love within himself. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 17 when he prayed for his disciples. The love in which you had for me before the world began, may it be in them also. There's an inter-Trinitarian love that loves each other perfectly, glorifies each other perfectly, points at each other perfectly. One God, three persons, equal in glory and power. Love isn't something added unto God. Love is an intrinsic value of who God is. You've run into problems if you don't have an eternal God. One, one more side note. I don't know if this is necessary or not, but I think it's fine. Um, if, 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 if God wasn't ultimately loving from the beginning, if God was... He was powerful, right? He created human beings, but he wasn't loving until human beings existed. That means you're saying that power existed before love, right? God, God wasn't loving. He was loving when he created human beings as an object of love. Before that, he had the power to create human beings, and then he became loving. You're saying that power, <clears throat> sorry, that power comes before love. And, and I don't know if I would say that. I think that's a problem with how people view power today. Power didn't come before love. Power and love coincides with each other all throughout eternity. That's why you don't abuse power. That's why power is meant to use, be used for love. It's not, it's not an entity that, love isn't an entity that comes unto God after he created human beings. It's something that he has always had in a loving Trinitarian relationship with himself. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, let's talk more about it later if you want. But this is an important claim to say that Jesus, again, we're assuming the Bible is the word of God. Okay, Jesus, John is saying, is God, and the New Testament is saying, is God. But throughout the Bible, this isn't just a claim that John made up. Jesus himself made claims that he indeed, indeed is, is God, recorded in the Gospels and, and other books in the New Testament. But Jesus would say that, I'm the vine, and to truly have life, you must abide in me. He also makes claims like, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets the Father but through me. Jesus also often claims to have the authority to forgive sin. Only God has the authority to forgive sin, not humans. And often also, Jesus didn't deny worship. When people worshipped him, he didn't deny it. Whereas in other places, when the disciples were being worshipped, I mean, the disciples are like the top tier of human beings, right, I guess? Like, and they're being worshipped, they tore their robes off and said, don't, don't worship me, I'm not God. But Jesus never denied it. Forgave sin, never denied worship, I'm the way, the truth, and life. By the way, another side note, Jesus' 12 disciples, the, the John, including John, the one who wrote this, this gospel, they didn't, gain, they didn't gain any earthly advantage from making up this story that this person is God. They didn't gain anything from it. If anything, they lost everything, every earthly possession they have. If they wanted to make up a religion just to get followers, why make it hard on themselves and come up with a Trinitarian God that they can't even explain themselves? It's not for personal glory. It's not for personal fame. They're actually persecuted, and they died. All of his disciples gave their lives because they cherished this truth that Jesus Christ, God of the Old Testament, very God of very God, came down unto earth and died for me and gave his life to me. And you might say that, well, it's normal for people to die for their religion. That happens every day. That's what extremists do. But you have to think about it. Back then, Christianity wasn't a religion yet. It was a person. They didn't die for a religion. They died for a person. Why would 12 people give their lives for something of a lie that they made up about a person? Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. Okay. This is the claim that John and the rest of the Bible is making. So let, let's summarize the Bible's theology. Let's, let's end our main point here, and then we'll move on to our, to our implications. The God of the Old Testament, the only triune God of the universe, who created life and gave light in the darkness, verses 1 to 5, this God who created the earth came down to earth, verses 9 to 10, in the person of Jesus Christ, who was with God, but also was God, not lesser than God, this true God was rejected by his people, verse 11, willingly died for us so that our sins may be forgiven and whoever believes in him now have the right to be called the children of God. That's the Bible's theology. This is the Christian's theology as emphasized by John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. But now let's get practical. What worldview comes out of this theology? How does believing this theology as true affect our daily lives? If what John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, that was just revealed to us, if this is true to you, I mean, I mean really true, as true as gravity is to a falling rock, as real as the person sitting next to you, if it's really true, if it's not just some nice story somebody made up to explain what love is, if it's not just some old fable somebody wrote to give us a lesson about life, if the Bible truly is the word of God, and this is what you base your theology on, it will shape your world and it will shape your life in immense ways. Four ways. It will define what true life is. It will shape the way of true love. It will give the church her true purpose and it will reveal God's passion for us. All right, let's talk about the first one. If the theology we just summarized is true, one, how does it define what life is? First, it defines our understanding of life because life now is more than just breathing and eating and drinking and working and playing. Life has to be much more than that. We're not by accident, we're by design of this Trinitarian God. Saying that people who are truly alive are those who are in him. What do I mean? Look at verse 4. In him, in this logos, in this God of creation, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what verse 4 says. See, the creator of life, the source of life, gets to define what life is, because he is where life is found. Life is found in him. That's important. In him. See, when parents give gifts to children, when, if, if you're a parent and you give a gift to your child, or if your parents has ever given a gift to you, it's not something in them. They buy a shoe. They buy a dress. They buy whatever. They give you money. These are all objects that are external of them. These are all objects that are outside of them, and they give it to you. But John is saying life is in him. What he's saying is that true life is found when, you're, when you become in Christ, when you're connected in Christ. Life isn't something that God gives to you that is external of him. Life is a gift that you get from God once you're engrafted into him. That's why John 15 gives the analogy of the vine and the branches, right? You want true life? You want to bear fruit? Abide in me, being grafted into me. This is why he died on the cross, because he cannot be with sin. Sin cannot be in him. In order for him to engraft us into himself, to give us life, he must deal with our sin. Thus, the cross. He came and died to forgive us of our sins, that we may be engrafted into the vine, John 15 says, and as branches have the source of life. You know what this means? I hope, I hope you're not upset when I make this claim. I'm just merely pointing out what kind of worldview we would get if we believe this theology. This means not everybody who's breathing and walking, and talking, and working, is truly alive. If that's our theology, that's our worldview. Not everybody who's doing animated, who's doing the things of this world, is truly, as the Bible defines it, truly, eternally, abundantly alive. That's why so many times in the New Testament, the authors describe people in their sin as, as dead in their sins. They're breathing, they're talking, they're walking, they're working, they're eating, they're drinking, but they describe them as, as dead. 
Colossians 2.13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this, this radically changes our view of life. To be, life to, to be alive, to have eternal life. You don't get it just by being religious. You don't get it just by being really good people or being really moral people. Being moral is good. Being good is good. Be good. <laughs> be moral. Be, do the spiritual disciplines. But, but life, in the truest of its essence, is not found by your morality. Life can only be found when you're engrafted into Christ, into the source of life. How do you do this? Through the cross. First forgiven of our sins and the vileness of our depravity. If we just focus on the moralities, if we just focus on the religiosities in our attempt to find life, to get our lives together, all we will do is be better people. Without Christ, separated from Christ, we won't find true life. You must be united with this creator, the source of life, who came to earth and died for you. Okay, this brings us to our second point. How then, if this is our theology that shapes our worldview and defines what life is and what life isn't, how does it shape the way of true love? If the definition of true life is being in him, not just by being good, by being moral, by going to church, but truly receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, that we may be engrafted, if that's a definition of life, how then can you truly love somebody? It means you really haven't truly loved somebody until your hearts have been broken and passionate and longing for them to receive Christ. You haven't really truly loved them. Look, look at John, six, uh, John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. This is what John the Baptist did. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This John is different than the John who wrote this book. This is a different John, John the Baptist. So John's writing about John, okay? There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist gets it. His theology which shapes his worldview and defines to him what life is and what life isn't, who is alive and who isn't. And now he sees others through this biblical lens, and he knows that if I truly love them, I will bear the witness of the light to them. I will share the gospel to them. I'm not saying that merely financial help isn't loving. It is loving. I'm not saying that simply empathizing with a friend who is sad isn't loving. That's very loving. We should do that more. I'm not saying that at the end of your workday, you have to scream on the top of your lungs the gospel before you leave and clock out every day, or else if you don't do that, you're not loving. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if, if that's our theology and our theology shapes our definition of life, it also shapes our definition of what it means to love. We should long and desire and pray for, and if the opportunity presents itself, share the source of life to those whom we claim to love. That's the definition of true love. Yes, help people financially. Yes, counsel them. Yes, be generous to them. Yes, be kind to them. Love them truly. But, but if, if, if this is your theology, then that's, that's your definition of love. I'm, I'm going to share a quick story that I've shared before about uh, two people called Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller are performing artists in Vegas, and they're atheists. Now, I can't remember, was it Penn or Teller that said this, but there's a video. Um, uh, I, think it was, I, think it was, I think it was Penn. Uh, Penn, an atheist, like he he doesn't hide it. He's an atheist. He says he's an atheist. He, he gets the Christian logic, though. He says that if you, Christians, if you truly believe that Jesus is the only way and truth and the life, if you truly believe that this is the only way I can be saved and, and I can have eternal life, if you truly believe that, an atheist is saying this, if you truly believe that, how much must you hate me to not share that message to me? It doesn't take a Christian to connect two and two. Even an atheist with, with, with reasonable logic connects it. If this is your worldview, how, how much must you hate me to not share that to me? Our theology shapes our worldview, and it shapes the way we live our lives. 
See, if we claim that our theology is true, that the Bible's theology is true, then it must mean not everybody who is walking and living life is truly alive. Look at them. Really look through them. Don't be fooled with the outside persona. Life in this moment might be going great for people. They might even look really moral and really religious, and they never drink, and they never smoke, and they never do this, they never do that. They may look really good, but look through them and ask yourself, is this person truly in Christ, or is he just trying to be a good person so that he can earn his salvation, so that he can somehow have life by being a goody-goody? See through them. But you know, you know what our theology also calls us to do? It calls us not only to look through others, but to look through ourselves. Ask ourselves, is my Christianity, is my church going, is my Bible study going, is my community group going, is my memory verse memorizing, is my praying, are these things done because I truly am in Christ and have life in him? Or am I still trying to earn my own salvation by doing good things? That's not where life is found. It's found in Christ. Another thing that it does, doesn't only tell you to look through people, it gives you hope. It gives you hope for the worst sinner. You might be here today and you might think that you're the worst sinner. Join the club. We all think we're the worst sinners. But you know what this theology tells us? That you have hope. Because it's not found in how good you can become. It's not found in how good your past has been. It's found in Christ. Have hope for yourself. That in him you may have the right to become the children of God. And I hope, hope for others. I know, I know somebody had hope for me, the worst sinner, 10 years ago. And I was thankful that he did. Pray, beg, think of, be broken for, hope, love, even the worst of sinners, even yourselves, that they or us may, through the witnessing of the light, come to true knowledge and true life in Christ. Third implication. If our theology is true, and it shapes our worldview, it gives the church her true purpose. This is my pet peeve, so I'll try not to go too long in this, but it gives the church her true purpose. How? One, it tells us that church isn't primarily a place where we get self-help pointers. We do not have the authority to preach about what we want to preach about. We don't have the authority to say whatever human wisdom I feel like saying to you this Sunday morning. We are called to be witnesses of the light, to bring people to Christ. This is not the time. These are all good things. I'm not saying these are bad things, but, but this is not the time to, to teach about the 10 steps of finding the perfect spouse. This is not the time to talk about the five principles of positive thinking. This is not even the time primarily to teach about church history or give you lessons about the church catechism. I love the catechism. Gray loves the catechism, or other elder. But this sermon time is not a time for that. This is a time where we are to preach about the light and the word of God. I don't have the authority to decide for myself what I am or what, what I'm supposed to be, what the church is. Preach, be witnesses of the light so that others may find true life. Two, we can't just preach on the easy things about Jesus, this light who is Jesus Christ. We can't just choose to talk about the easy stuff. I've heard too many faithful Bible-preaching churches get criticized because they preach on stuff that are too complicated. Why, why talk about the Trinity? The, the Trinity? Why talk about the Incarnation, God becoming man? Why talk about that? Why talk about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why talk about the, the complicated things of salvation? Just keep it simple. Just preach Christ crucified. That's all you need to preach. Simply, I don't want to say the word because I know there's an organization in this city that sounds similar, but, but simply Jesus Christ. Simply, why? you can't say that. You can't. Because what does it mean to be witnesses of the light? What does it mean to be witnesses of Jesus? It means that you have to talk about the Trinity. Our first verse of this passage forced us to do that. I can't truly teach you about this passage if I don't talk about the Trinity. I can't, talk about the, I can't not talk about the Incarnation. How do I witness about the light unless I talk about how the light became man and came to earth? I can't not talk about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament because John obviously was referring back to the Old Testament. Genesis 1 and John 1. You have to preach, be witnesses of the light, of the whole light. 
We don't decide what we get to preach, and we can't just choose to talk about the simple things of Jesus so that we can get more followers or, or whatever it may be. Third, it allows the church and allows Christians to rest. To rest. Look at verse 8. John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witnesses to, to bear witness to the light. John knows that he wasn't the light. In other words, my goodness, if my heart can just believe this truth, I'd be a much restful person. John knows that the world is not about him. <laughs> I wish I really did believe that. The world is not about you. This is what our theology says. Life isn't about us. Do you know what it's really about? It's about another main character. It's about another story. See, who you think the main character in life is dependent on whose story you think is the main story of life. If you think that your story is the main story of life, then you're the main character of life. But this is what John's saying, your story isn't the chief story. It's not the chief narrative. You're not the main character. There's a God in the beginning who created all things and purposed all of creation for his glory. Look again at our passage. There's, there's a greater story that John tells us in this passage. Verses 1 to 4, he starts off with, in the beginning, creation. Verse 5, he talks about darkness that rejected the light, sin, or the fall, the fall of man, sin. Verse 9 to 13, the results of believing in this light is that we may be redeemed, become children of God, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. There's a bigger story here. There's a grander narrative than our own stories in this life, and we are not the main characters. God is. This Trinitarian only creator God is. And this is why Jesus, throughout the book of John, really, um, says over and over again what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses asked God, who are you? Who would, I, who would I tell these people that you are? God said, tell them that I am. Jesus, many times in the gospel of John, repeatedly says that. I am. 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 What does that imply? You're not. I am. It's about me. It's not about you. Rest. Relax. It's okay. It's okay that people don't have the best opinion of you all the time. It's okay that you don't feel like you're high in the social status all the time. Because it's not about you. It's about God. Our job is to witness about this light and lead others to him. This is what the gospel does. No other human philosophy can take our eyes off ourselves. No other religiosity can take our eyes off ourselves like the gospel can. Moralism or religiosity says that the more good you do and the less bad you do, the more guaranteed your salvation is. So every day you're walking life looking at yourself about how much good or bad you've done, how, how well you've performed, how well you've denied sin, how well you've, and it's all about you, you, you. The gospel is saying it's not about you. You are not the hero of this story. It's about a God that came and saved. He gets to be the hero. A pastor once said in his book, and I'm going to paraphrase here because of cultural sensitivities, um, but I think this will still get the main point across. He said, the atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person, and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. See? Performance leads to the verdict. I'm a good person, therefore I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Religion that puts our works and performance as the basis of our relationship with God and our salvation does the same too. Performance leads to verdict. How well you are leads to the verdict of who you are. Performance leads to verdict. All this means is that every single day you are in the courtroom. And every day you're on trial. That is the problem. See, in Christ, the verdict leads to performance. Christ has anointed you as a child of God and died for your sins and given you life. That's the verdict. You are alive in him by his death. Now you perform because of what he has done for us. Okay. Before we move on to our last implication, let's sum summarize the three implications we just talked about. And our main point, if our theology is true that Jesus Christ is truly God, and this God, very God of very God, 
came to earth and died for our sins. Therefore, and eternal life is only found in him. Therefore, one, we must be able to see through people's religiosity and ask the question, have they truly received Christ? We have to be able to see our, through our own religiosity and ask ourselves, is my Christianity just something that I've adopted from my parents and I've just, I'm a Christian because my parents were a Christian? And, or have I truly been engrafted into the vine through the cross of Christ? That's one. Two, we must be witnesses of the light. Share Christ with them. At least you must long for the opportunity at the very least. Since whatever you do to them, they are dead in their sins and will never have life until they receive Christ. Three, have hope for even the worst sinners. Because no matter how lowly a person, or you think a person is, life is not found in how good they are. Their hope isn't found in how, how successfully they can turn their life over. Their hope is found in the fact that Christ died for them. And therefore, have hope for yourself. If you view yourself as the worst of the sinners in this room, I have hope for you. Because I know that your salvation is found in Him, not on how well you behave from here on out. Four, rest. We can rest. Because our eternal hope and focus in life is not on ourselves, it's not on our own story, but our lives is all about God and His grand narrative. He's the main character. We're, at best, supporting actors, if you can even say that. But lastly, what does this theology reveal about God and his love for us? This is our last point. Application number four. What does it reveal about God's passion for us? There's something interesting about our passage. Think about it. This, this God, this light, this, this source of life who created all things in Genesis, he didn't need to come to earth and, and, and live a sinless life and, and die on a cross to create the world in the first place. Why does he have to do it now to save the world. If he can create the world so easily, why does he have to go through all that trouble to save us and to redeem us and to make new creation in us? Why can't he just give us eternal life? It's the same God, right? Same God of the Old Testament. Why can't he just redo what he did? Because of sin. See, when God first created the world, he started from nothing. He started from zero. He started from neutral. But now, to save us from our sin, He's starting not from nothing. He's not starting from neutral. He's starting from negative. He's starting with sinful people. And he must deal with this thing of sin that was not there in the beginning of creation. And this tells us just how much he loves us. Just what he's willing to go through to make us his children. To the point where he would die on a cross and take the punishment and erase the guilt and the vileness and the horridness of our sins. See, what our theology does, it doesn't just shape our worldview, but it should melt our hearts. God is so resolved to have you. He would go as far as being crushed and humiliated on a cross and take upon himself the ultimate definition of rejection so that he can become a sin offering and give those who would receive him the right to become his children. The only one who actually has the right to make life all about him bowed his head on a cross and made his life about you. And we, who, who life isn't about, so often want to make it about us. That's why he died, to save us from that. Friends, if, if you believe that the Bible is, is truly the word of God, it's not just a fable. It's not just a story somebody made up to teach about good and evil. It's not just some motivational fiction to make us feel better about ourselves. If you believe that this is true, that means how unworthy as you feel you are, as sinful as you think you are, as dirty as you feel you are, you have to deal with the reality that God died for you. Very God of very God died for you. The same God who is the source of life and created the world in Genesis, the same God who parted the sea, who shook Mount Sinai in flames, that same God died for you. I wonder if we truly realize the weight of that statement. If it's not just a fable, if it's not just a pretty story somebody made up, if this is true, deal with the fact that God died for you. How does that change our lives? Because if we, true this, if we truly do this, we will run into his arms and not focus on how bad we are, how defiled we are, how sinful we are, but we'll focus on him 
the true main character, and receive him with arms wide open. The only place where life can be found, not in mere morality or religiosity, but in Christ, in him. And we'll also see others, begin to see others in this lens. And you know what will this, this will do is that it will push you to share the gospel with others and share Christ with them and know that they are just like you, sinners in need of Christ. And finally, all this will make you rest. Rest, it's not about you. It's about how much glory he gets. He's the main character. His story is the main story. This is what life is all about. This is what it means to be human, to be his creature. He's the main character. Run to him. It's not about how sinful you are. Take your eyes off yourself. It's about his mercy. It's about his grace. And as someone who's been brought from death to life, love others and share this gospel with those around you that they may too have life. And rest, relax, it's not about you. Don't be so terribly worried about people's opinions. As long as you may glorify him and be witness, that leads others to him. Take your eyes off yourself and get lost in this grand narrative. Get lost in it. Creation, fall, redemption. Get lost in this grand narrative and fall in love with the main character. Because he has first loved you. Even if it meant he must die for you, that you may have life. Let's pray. Father, very God of very God, true triune God, the only God, uncomprehensible to our finite minds, unsatisfiable in our heads cognitively until we probably see you face to face. But Lord, if we believe the Bible is the word of God and it shapes our theology radically and it changes our worldview radically, and it changes the way we live our lives radically. And Father, help us, help us have an integrated worldview and theology as informed by what is true. Lord, you have loved us and came down and died for our sins, that now we may have life in you. Make it real in our hearts, no matter how uncertain we are of our, of our future performances, how uncertain we are about how how our history has defiled us, what we've done or what has been done to us. I pray that we take our eyes off ourselves and look unto you and your grace and your mercy and your cross. And by doing so, be creatures anew, alive in you, and live our lives in this world with a worldview as such, in a loving relationship, lost in this grand narrative, in love with the main character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>